Welcome back to the program. Imagine if decisions in Washington, or at any level of government for that matter, were really made on the basis of policy. If careful analysis would win out over politics, certainly the current health care debate in Washington would be very different. But so would our discussions of economic policy. If our discussions of the 2008 financial meltdown had been about analysis of what happened, as opposed to who's to blame, perhaps we'd have learned a lot more. We're going to talk about this historical habit of politics over policy with my guest Richard Grossman. He's professor of economics at Wesleyan University, a visiting scholar at the Institute for Quantitative Social Science at Harvard, and a fellow of the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation. He runs the blog Unsettled Account, and it is my pleasure to welcome him here to talk about his newest work, Wrong, Nine Economic Policy Disasters and What We Can Learn From Them. Richard Grossman, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. Great to have you here. Is looking at economic policy and the history of economic disasters in the past a little like we hear with the military from time to time is that we're always fighting the next war with the lessons we learned from the last one, and they're not always relevant lessons? Well, I, one of the things, I have to say one of the things that I think the military does well is they think long and hard about what's gone on in the past. If you look at the American, uh, American and British official histories of, say, World War II, they run to thousands of pages. And so I think there's something, there's something good about, uh, about that kind of introspection on an organizational level. Um, you know, if you can think the other sort of the analogy that I often use is with uh, pathologists, people who conduct autopsies and, and hospitals that have what they call M&M conferences, mortality and morbidity conferences to try and figure out what went wrong. There's, of course, always a danger that you'll be, as you say, fighting the last war or discovering the last disease. But I think there's a fair bit to be learned because it turns out there's a certain there is sometimes a certain amount of continuity or there might be a pattern that you could find in looking at some of these past mistakes. As we look at the world today as it relates to economic policy, and it is certainly so much more interconnected than it has been at various times, and of course technology and the speed at which things move, do those lessons from the past still become as relevant? They are. Um, It's true that some of the challenges that we're facing now are amplified, if you will, by all this, by the rapidity. If you, can, you can go back to the 1850s and you can see the spread of the financial crisis out from London and it starts in London and if you, it, it goes out to the provinces, it goes further to the colonies, it, it goes to Europe. And you could, if you were to look at a map, you could sort of see it uh, emanate out from London out to the rest of the world. Similarly, other crises you could follow from the United States or from different parts of the United States. So these things have always spread. Crises, economic, financial, have always spread. The difference, as you're absolutely right, I think, is that it happens much more rapidly now. And the decisions get multiplied and they get multiplied much sooner and there's frequently less time to react. Are there things that are inherent, and I know you talk quite a bit about this, inherent in the business cycle, the ups and downs of the way the economy works, the way business works, that makes economic crisis almost inevitable? Well, if you look at the last 200 years, it it seems to be inevitable because we keep coming back to them. Uh, I would say that there is something in the business cycle, the, the sort of the normal periodic ups and downs, 
that makes us somewhat susceptible to crises. That said, there are things that we can do to offset those, some of those ups and downs. And I think that when we undertake policies that exaggerate uh, or amplify these periodic and regular ups and downs, not, not every cyclical uh, ups, uh, upswing and downswing comes with a financial crisis at the end. So while it's true that sort of there are, that are, there are normal ups and downs, it's also true that a financial crisis is not inevitable. And even to the extent that you believe that they will come, I think it's possible to make them less regular occurrences, not the ups and downs, but we can do things to mitigate uh, financial crises and to make them less likely to occur with every up and down. Is the real goal then of this forensic approach to economics to prevent the financial crisis from happening or to make us far better able to deal with those ups and downs when they happen? Well, I think studying financial uh, and economic crises in the past, really, you, we can really do both of these things. First of all, it can help to avoid crises. There are things that we can do uh, to, avoid gen- to avoid creating the conditions that lead to financial crises. But I think there's also sort of the remediation effort, and that is we can see how different uh, t- and different times and places uh, people, governments, institutions have dealt with financial crises and, and other types of crises. And sometimes they've done better jobs and sometimes they've done worse jobs. And so I think policymakers today, if you, can, if you uh, think about what people at the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund are studying, a lot of these folks are studying how banking crises get resolved. And one of the big comparisons that's been made is between the Japanese crisis uh, during the, uh, the 90s, uh, the, the, lost, the so-called lost decade, and what the Scandinavians did uh, somewhat later when they had financial crisis. And the, the difference is, you know, between addressing them and dr- addressing these things promptly. And what the Japanese did during their case was to basically put everything off and to avoid things and to hide the problems from the public. So I think the answer to your question is really both. We can help to avoid similar problems, and we can also learn something about dealing with the problems that we have. As you look at these nine particular disasters that you talk about, how much did politics play a role? In other words, how many of the the bad decisions made along the way came not from economists and economic policy experts making bad decisions, but how much came as a result of politics driving those bad decisions? A lot, I'd say, uh, which is, of course, gets me into dangerous ground because economists like to say, oh, it's easy, just sort of solve the political issues yourselves, and uh, it's all quite simple, it's just a political problem. A lot of times, these things happen because politicians have, uh, I'd say, uh, a lot of times it's because politicians aren't necessarily that interested in getting economic advice. A lot of times they come into office with preconceived notions about this is how we're going to do things, whether there's economic backing or not. So, you know, and again, some of that depends on their on their voting base. I think the people who support the who supported the no new tax pledge of the Grover Norquist uh, people, uh, they felt that was a, a vote winner. And that was so there was a political basis for doing that. Uh, but I'd say on the economic level, there was very little economic thought that went into it. So, yes, there's a, 
there's a, there are a lot of there is there, there's always political pressure to do what's popular and what will keep you in office, and I think that has been a problem. Circling back around to the point that we made before about interdependence and complexity, is the economic system so much more complex today that that politics can muck it up in even worse ways than in the past? Well, it is true that the government plays a larger role in the economy or has done since, say, World War II than it did before. So the fact of the matter is there's more that the government can do to mess things up. In the 19th century, the government played a much lesser role in the economy. And so, sure, they, had, they could still do things to mess things up, but they were less, their hand was not quite as deeply involved in the day-to-day uh, economic, uh, economic uh, decisions being made in the country. So, yeah, I think it's, it's safe to say that the government has... <laughs> They have more capabilities to make things better, and they have more capabilities to make things worse. Looking at our most recent financial crisis, what role did the complexity of that and all the various securities and credit default swaps and all the other things that were so much a part of it, to what extent did that complexity play a role in, one, creating the crisis, but more specifically exacerbating it once it started to happen? Well, I'd say... I'd say that there are really uh, two responses to that. One is that in every financial crisis, virtually every financial crisis, there is some new, there is some particular asset or particular item that becomes sort of the object of speculation. So in this particular case, it was the subprime, it was subprime mortgages. Uh, turns out real estate has been the cause of crisis or the, at the center of a lot of financial crises over the last 200 years. True, they didn't have collateralized debt obligations and, and, and various other securitized uh, uh, debt in, in uh, tradable, uh, uh, securitized uh, tradables uh, in, in the 19th century, but they developed other things. Uh, during the bearing crisis of the 1890s, uh, investing in Latin American securities was something that had been that was not terribly regular and had become a big deal. And then everyone sort of jumped on the bandwagon. And in the 1890s, or running up to the 1890s, uh, they all collapsed. So I think what happens is in every crisis, uh, speculators find a way to discover some new item. And of course, in finance it's relatively easy to invent new securities. And as you say, with growing complexity, it becomes even easier to write more and more complicated contracts. Now, I would say that the way to mitigate the harmful, there, there are ways to mitigate the harmful consequences of some of this complexity. Now, it might be, it would, it would be nice to say, well, let's just go back to a time before there was all this complexity. But that's hard to do. We really can't turn the clock back. So some, a lot of these things are, are with us. And the way to deal with them, I would say, is first to have the government regulate in the sense of making everything as transparent as possible. So everyone knows exactly what the score is. And the second thing I would say is that people who use these new types of complex securities have to be willing to put up their own capital to back these things up. 
instead of doing everything with 100% or more than 100% with borrowed money. I think it's important that when people and institutions bear the risk of what they're doing, you have better outcomes. As we look at many of these financial crises, is it almost a regular pattern that in order to solve them, somebody has to suffer some pain in the process? There's always one group or groups that seem to have to suffer the most pain as a result of figuring out what the solutions are. Well, someone always suffers, and it's true that in a lot of economic policy, the question is not that there's going to be pain, because there will be. The question is who's going to bear the pain, and, and you can see it every time something like this happens. In fact, any time any legislation comes around to these big fights, you know, the health care law, anything, everyone's jumping into the fray because... They're either they're trying to avoid getting clipped by these new laws and rules and regulations. And so you see, and right after crises, and after, right after crises, the people want action, and understandably so. So what happens is that we know we're going to do something about finance. We know we're going to reform finance. So, and, and there's a lot of popular outrage. And so everyone with an, with an axe to grind runs into Washington and does their very best to make sure that what comes out is in their interest, which means that they don't bear the cost, someone else bears the cost. And so arguing and trying to persuade our elected representatives to have someone else pay for the mistake, that's, that's an age-old tradition. Can one be ob- truly objective in analyzing economic policy. In other words, it's nice to think about just cold hard analysis as the solution to many of these issues, but aren't there underlying ideologies that are just inevitably part of the discussion and the debate? Yeah, that's I think that's a great that's a great question. And sure, it's it's impossible to completely disconnect yourself from your prior beliefs and and how you believe the world works. I I understand that. I get that and Again, my, my, the analogy I would use there is uh, to a debate over taxes. I can imagine uh, economists, politicians who favor lower taxes. It would be popular. They may think that the government doesn't spend the money as wisely as individuals do. I can see that. I can also imagine people who think that, on average, we should have a higher level of taxation so that the government can undertake more, uh, more of the important programs, social programs, educational, whatever, that the government, that, that they favor. So I can imagine someone being on the side of higher taxes. I can imagine someone being on the side of lower taxes. And so in that sense, uh, there's a certain amount of ideology in all policy. On the other hand, what I don't agree with, approve of, uh, what I can't fathom is when people say, I will never raise taxes under any circumstances. The, using these categoricals, I think, Without even considering the economic evidence, I think that's the problem. If we wanted to go further, if we wanted truly enlightened policymakers that were working to learn uh, and to undertake objective analysis, that's well. But at the first level, it's sort of at the most extreme level, I think we have to get rid of the notion that we don't have to think about these things and we don't need any analysis. So that's the first level. The second level, I think, is that to the extent possible we want to have this passion and analysis. There are individuals and organizations who have very good reputation for doing things pretty much straight up and down the line. Think organizations like the Congressional uh, Budget Office, right? They produce forecasts. And in fact, a lot of the, the sort of the, the raw data that's produced by the government, uh, much of that is 
I mean, I would say all of that is pretty much beyond, uh, you know, the, no one has questioned the that when the government produces figures, at least our government produces figures, that they produce them uh, objectively and honestly. So I think while it's true that one can't 100% get your viewpoint out of the way when making policy, I do think that it's possible to to really sort of minimize it and to take as much objective used facts, uh, use as much analysis, have an argument between people with different uh, views, and then make a decision. I think it's when people go in with a closed mind and say, this is going to be our solution, uh, then we that we run into trouble. But I agree with you, it's difficult to, it, it's impossible to say, my views, I'll just forget about my views and try and do something by the book, because the, there is no book. The corollary problem also seems to be trying, even in, from a forensics approach, trying to identify where the string begins, where the real problems start to emanate. Again, looking at the 2008 financial crisis, there are many people that put the beginning at the Bush tax cuts and, and then the Fed policy in response to that, etc. Very hard to figure out where these things begin. That's right. Uh, you know, the, 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 certainly the Fed policy, they argued that they kept uh, interest rates low be, uh, for longer than most people thought they should have because they were worried about a jobless recovery. Uh, they had concerns, and so they kept interest rates low. But I have to tell you, they kept interest rates very low for a very long period of time. And so it's true that, you know, as historians like to say, one darn thing leads to uh, – history is just one darn thing after another. Uh, I think at some point you can say – I mean, again, to talk about the last crisis, I think the Bush tax cuts were very much uh, a factor in generating them. And when he came into office, he said very clearly, it's not the government's money, it's the people's money, and we're going to cut taxes. And they did that three times in three years. There was no pressing need to do that at the time. Then when wars in Iraq and Afghanistan came along, and again, I'm not commenting on the, the wisdom of pursuing those, but the fact of the matter is, if you're going to spend all this money on wars, at the same time, cutting taxes and telling people that the most patriotic thing they can do is go shopping, I think there's a real problem there. So I think while it's true that sort of, you know, one recession flows into the next period's loose monetary policy, which flows into the next period's financial crisis, I think that's a great point, and I agree with that to some extent, but I think that in the case of the Bush tax cuts, there was no reason for, the, for this consistent uh, lowering, and then when, when we got involved in, in, in overseas, uh, in, in wars, to then continue that policy, not to say, you know, folks, we're going to have to pay for these wars, we need to ease off on some of the tax cuts. That, I think, that, that, there I think you can find a, a beginning, uh, in some sense, to, to the crisis. As you look at these other eight crises that you delineate in wrong. Can you find similar situations where you can identify a starting point or some semblance of a starting point? Well, sure. Uh, in one of the chapters, I talk about uh, the Irish famine. Now, of course, the, Irish, the very simple thing there is that it wasn't brought about, the, 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 fa the famine itself wasn't brought about by government policy. The famine was brought about because uh, there was the potato blight. And so there you have a, a perfect beginning. And you have at the time, or you had at the time, a government 
that was doing everything it could to solve the problem. And one of the things that they did to solve the problem was to repeal uh, the corn laws. And the corn laws were just a tariff on imported grain. And that essentially lowered the price of grain that was going to Ireland and made it easier for people to, to feed themselves. But that proved so politically unpopular with the prime minister who passed it that he got voted out of office. And then the next guy came in and just did an awful job and decided that it really wasn't worth the government's time to try to feed the people. So I would say that, uh, you know, in that case and in some of the others, you do have starting points. But I, I, I take your point uh, very seriously that it's hard in a lot of these crises to say, it all began on thus and such a day, because you're right, history flows, economic policy flows, and we're not, politicians don't walk into a clean, on, you know, they don't have a clean slate when they come into office. They're always stuck with the conditions that they're left by the economy, by nature, uh, by previous politicians. And so I think, I think your point that, you know, it's hard to say that there's a beginning uh, to any crisis is, is challenging. And so what I've done is to try to do that as much as possible. But I, I recognize that you know, history isn't as neat as, all of, as, as that. The other aspect that you talk about in the book is the degree to which other kinds of policy, foreign policy, environmental policy, I mean, we could go on and on, so many of those areas have a profound economic impact and are conducted by people that really aren't looking at what the potential economic consequences might be. Well, that's true. And I think, again, I think there is a distinction to be made uh, in the sense that it's, for example, foreign policy. You know, foreign policy is a little is, is different than economic policy. I think in economic policy, we have certain metrics, certain benchmarks that we're trying to hit. We're trying to keep people. We're trying to have the economy progress. We're trying to keep people employed. We're trying to keep the standard of living up. We're trying to generate or maintain some sort of uh, equality. Uh, foreign policy is a little more complicated because you can imagine a situation where by supporting uh, a horrible dictator, uh, that was good economics. If a horrible dictator happened to be wealthy and was doing a lot of business with us uh, or was an unsavory ruler, and we've dealt with some of them in our time, and you can argue that that would have been good economic policy. But I think when we're making foreign policy, for example, we have to think a lot about I think ideology has to play a bit more of a role. I know this sounds strange coming from uh, uh, someone who's been writing harshly about making ideologically based policy. But I think in the sense of um, foreign policy, you know, we have a country has ideals. We do want to support democracy and freedom. And and so we don't necessarily want to get into bed with every dictator that comes along, even if they can do us some good. And I think that's where, that's where some real soul-searching has to come along. In terms of environmental policy, well, I think the issue there is not so much ideologies. We just have to keep a very long-term uh, view. And that is, we can't, be, we can't think short-term, which, by the way, is a problem with a lot of things. I think we want to think long-term because environmental decisions that we make now will affect us for generations. And so I think the problem there is it's easy to say, oh, we don't have to worry about pollution. They'll come up with a way of fixing it 50 years from now. Well, they might not. And so I think we have to use the best information that we have and to do as good a job with it. And about that, I think we have to be non-ideological. We, don't, we shouldn't be saying that, um, we shouldn't be arguing that about the science. I think the science is relatively clear, and I think we should be taking the science and then doing 
what economics says we ought to be doing. Does computer modeling and all the opportunities that supercomputers provide to be able to do that kind of economic modeling, does that help us act in a more logical and objective way today? Well, yes, in the sense that we can do more analysis. The the no is that when we tend to sort of, if we if we give up our sovereignty to the computers, then I think we're in a bit of difficulty. But the computers and the computer modeling can be very helpful in the sense that we can use them to sort of simulate possibilities. You know, the, where the banks were doing stress tests in the United States, that was in a, some sense a computer model. They modeled what uh, what would happen to banks' balance sheets under certain economic scenarios. That's a that's a model. It's not perfect, but it does give an indication of what might happen if certain things happen to the economy. So I think that that economic modeling and computer modeling is helpful. Uh, we just have to keep it uh, in perspective and have to use it. It's a tool, right? Economists, we have a lot of tools in our toolbox. Computer modeling and, and theoretical models is one, but we also have and, and statistical models and things like that. But we also have other things. We can do cost-benefit analysis. We can look at historical uh, uh, situations. You know, if a policy was tried 20 years ago or three years ago in another country, we should be willing to learn from those things. I guess my main point is we have a lot of tools in our kit that we can use to make economic policy. We can do cost-benefit analysis. We can use computer models. We can use historical studies. We need to use all of these. To what extent, as you look finally at these nine crises that you write about in Wrong, are there absolute common threads and similar things that you could find among all of them? Well, I'd say the ideology is really the, the, the main takeaway, and that is when we, when we sort of depart from, a, from an analytical view of things, we get into trouble. There are other things as well. I, one is that when we make mistakes, we need to be quick to correct them. Uh, you know, John Maynard Keynes famously re- said to someone, you know, when I'm wrong, when I, when I, uh, <laughs> when I'm wrong, I, oh, what did he say? He said, when I'm, he said, when I make a mistake, I say I'm wrong and I, and I fix it. What do you do? And I think that's, that's, that's another important issue. Again, the case of the, the Japanese during the, the last decade comes up is they basically did everything they could to hide, uh, the difficulties. When we make mistakes, we have to correct them. And I think that's, uh, another common theme. Another one is that we have to be careful, and I think you you brought this up when you talked about who um, you know people who benefit or people who suffer when crises are cleaned up. It's very important to have on the table, or to at least have in policymakers' minds, where the burden of a particular policy falls, because virtually every policy that we can think of has a distributional consequence. It will help homeowners. It will hurt the poor. It will help big business or it will help small business. And sometimes these are explicit, but sometimes politicians make them and it doesn't get the full airing that it should. And I think that it's important to bear in mind who bears the cost and who benefits from policy. Now, the fact that I may benefit from a policy that's good from the country doesn't make it a bad policy. It just We just want to make sure that we're making the policy uh, for reasons that will help the economy. And if it happens to help a few people along the way, fine. But we have to be careful because if you make enough of these policies that just benefit me, I start to get nervous about the politicians that they may be that they may be my relatives. Richard Grossman, his book just out from Oxford University Press is wrong. 
Nine Economic Policy Disasters and What We Can Learn From Them. Richard, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you, Jeff. It was my pleasure. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.